Support for today's show comes from Squarespace. Hey, it is almost 2019. After that, 2020. After that, 2021. After that, um, I can't I can't get that far. But you want to have a website because we live in the future. We live in a wired time. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to build a website that fits you perfectly. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hey, folks, this is not an advertisement. It is me, Alex, uh, with a massive announcement to make for the first time about the Cracked Podcast. It's a huge announcement in particular for Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Chicago. And also for St. Paul, Minnesota, Twin Cities. And uh, and anybody with the wherewithal to get to those places, uh, enough buildup. The announcement is we are taking our show on the road. The first ever Cracked Podcast Tour is happening this spring. We finally get to go places and see you. And the dates for that are Thursday, April 11th at Lincoln Hall in Chicago, Illinois, and then Friday, April 12th, Amsterdam Bar and Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota. April 11th, Chicago, April 12th, St. Paul, Minnesota. Both those cities are going to get their own custom-built live episode of the show, and I, I can't wait to do it. I'm very excited. Also, tickets will go on sale later this week if you're listening when this drops December 10th. Uh, I believe they go on sale Wednesday, and our cracked social media and my social media will we'll post all about it. You'll be able to find it. In the meantime, mark April 11th and 12th on your calendar if you can possibly come see us. I really, really hope you do because this is unprecedented. It's very exciting, and it's something I've always wanted to do with the show. I hope you'll join us for it because it's going to be a great time. In the meantime, thank you, very excited about it, and I hope I'll see you on the road. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ, and I am also also convinced that you deserve an early Christmas present or or a late one if you wait to hear this. Either way, I have wonderful news for you. Our guest this week is your pal and mine, writer for the very funny show American Dad, swell as heck human, Soren Bowie. Yeah, yeah, Soren. Good old Soren. And, uh, and there's no reason to delay you hearing from him uh, other than to say our topic this week is underappreciated astronaut and cosmonaut heroism. Soren, he has done some really lovely and also very funny cracked writing about space and, and the people, you know, laboring to get us there. And so we decided we should spend our episode, you know, celebrating those people who went up there and went out there and risked everything for the rest of humanity. Because I don't know, that's kind of a perfect thing in its way for the holidays to us. So please sit back or keep reaching to top your Christmas tree with a model of Apollo 11. You know, isn't that a fun idea? Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Soren Bowie. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. I was really excited to do some kind of show about space, especially with you, because you've done some of my favorite cracked writing on it and just uh, talking about it in life. Yeah, great. Yeah, I love space. And the heroes of it, too. Like, do you remember a time when you got into NASA? Like, I remember having a childhood NASA phase, which has just basically continued. But but I got way (laughs) into it at one specific point. Right around I would say like from eight to 36, like that's, <laughs> that was my NASA face. Yeah. I, I do remember getting into it. I remember seeing, like, I didn't understand what, what a space shuttle was and like how that was different from a rocket when I was really young or anything. And like, I was like really trying to figure out where people go in a yeah. rocket, and not understanding. And then seeing a space launch before Challenger where we were watching pieces just fall off. And I was like, this is a disaster. And they're like, no, 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 that stuff's supposed to happen. All oh, that's supposed yeah. to happen. And I then, remember thinking that too. As a kid, I was like, they're wasting a lot of bits. <laughs> yeah. Like the whole middle of the rocket. And yeah. Can't they still use that up there? <laughs> yeah, I felt the same way. Then it was probably actually, I think I remember being ushered into the assembly room for Challenger and watching the video of that. Oh my God. Yeah. We were in our classrooms and we were there going to watch the space uh, launch. Like it became a very big deal that all classrooms across the United States were really going to watch the oh. space launch because there was a teacher on board. Right. And so they ha- ushered all the kids from my elementary school. I must have been in like first or second grade. And we all went into the assembly room and we started watching it on one of those mobile TVs. 
probably actually Challenger peaked it for me because we didn't understand quite what was going on. We knew it was probably something bad, but the teachers all seemed very sad, but we were just very curious. Like what just happened? Oh, yeah. What is it? So those people on the spaceship, they exploded. That wasn't supposed to happen. Okay. So, <laughs> and like trying to figure that out and then space when, because it was something that was a little bit dangerous and scary, then I became into it. Yeah. Um, in the same way that like young kids get into dinosaurs or like lions, like predatory animals where they're like, I don't totally like this thing, but I think I need to know more about it. There's a fascinating element to it. And, oh, yeah. uh, well, and I feel like also schools pushing kids to check it out. I feel like it ties into something that in one of your, one of your crack columns you picked out that there's sort of a weird I feel lack of enthusiasm about space, at least in America across history. Like, I think we ask schools to push it as much as they can, but you pick out in the column and we'll link to the articles about it, but how even in the famous space race where it was like, ah, JFK's leading us against the Russians. JFK himself was not all that into space. Right. Since then, the country has kind of let presidents do or not do anything in space. They're not really that worried about it. <laughs> <laughs> that does seem like a fair assessment. Yeah. You're just good. You're like, all right, well, if they're into space, they can do something with it, I guess. Um, but there's, <laughs> I think it's the problem is the way that we teach kids about it. Cause it's very hard to get excited about space the way that it's taught. It's not like going to the depths of the ocean where you're like, and we're going to find some fucking crazy animals down there that no one's ever seen before. Oh yeah. In space, we're like, we're probably not going to find anything like that. They went, they're trying to sell it as like, we're, well, we want to see what Venus is made of. We want to see, we want to get down to like the core of Mars and see what's down in Mars. As far as like extending the senses, the human senses beyond our atmosphere, I feel like is the wrong way to go because kids don't care about that shit. They, it's like, <laughs> What we care about is extending the sensibilities of, of humanity beyond our atmosphere, like extending oh. who we are out there. And like, why the, why does space call you? Why are you like, why are the stars so interesting? And like, why are we so curious about going there? And it's not just the logistical stuff of we're going to find some ore or we're going to find something that we can put in our phones or things like that. It's like, just to do it is the reason that we want to go. And it's okay yeah. to scratch that itch. It's okay to, throughout history, you've got people like George Mallory climbing Everest and they're like, everyone's like, well, why the fuck do you want to do that? Right, you're right. Like, we don't have all the gold up there, the things <laughs> yeah. to put in his phones. Don't you know yeah. we don't have Gore-Tex yet? Why do you want to do that? <laughs> and he was like, there's part of you that it calls to. And and everybody feels it. Everybody knows. I, I need to try this. I need to like try to conquer this thing that has never been conquered before, never been seen before. And I think if we treat space that way and we acknowledge that that's an okay indulgence for kids to try to reach to, I think that they'd be more excited about it. Everest is such a good parallel. Like it is a thing. It's just worth doing. And like, why wouldn't we want to go beyond where we are? Why not try yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> you, you feel that in your heart. You feel that you want to try it, like to do something that no one's done before. That's fine. Yeah. You, it's okay. to. That's not a selfish, well, it is selfish, but it's not so <laughs> selfish that you should ignore it. <laughs> And it's cool that as a United States and in history that we've done it at all, in particular because JFK, who we who we see as the person who launched the space race, because in 1961, he told Congress that we should get to the moon by the end of the decade. At the same time, in a meeting in 1962 with NASA people, he said, quote, I'm not that interested in space. <laughs> uh, and then there's a story that uh, Charles Stark Draper tells, who was an engineer with NASA, that he got dinner with JFK and RFK in the late 50s. And both guys just kind of made fun of the idea of wanting to go to space and spending money on it. And, and they weren't that into it. So he might have done it to kind of distract from the Bay of Pigs. But also <laughs> we did it and, and hooray. It was great. Yeah. In retrospect, everyone's <laughs> like the moon landing. That what an incredible thing that we accomplished. You know, the people who believe in it. Are like, they're yeah. like, that what an incredible thing we accomplished. <laughs> but at the time, people weren't watching that on TV. Like no one really gave a shit in the United States, not just the presidents and not just the White House and government in general, nobody at home really cared about space much. Mm. They didn't care about the moon landing like we think that they would have. Because every now we look back and we're like, where were you when when we landed on the moon? And our grandparents are like, um, oh. <laughs> I, that's not a vivid <laughs> memory for me. <laughs> that's also an amazing thing to me too. I'm just realizing that the moon landing is both something that people oddly weren't that interested in and also such an incredible achievement that there's a lot of people who think it never happened. You know, yeah. like it's too hard. Like there's no way we, it's too cool. Yeah. <laughs> but also people who are like, ah, eh, it's not that cool. It's a weird balance to me. It is. Yeah. I guess the people who maybe have, even have some semblance of how terrifying space is and how complicated it is to do certain things in space, which we're about to talk about. 
Yeah. That then those people, I can understand why those people are like, well, then the, going to the moon was impossible. There was no way we were ever going to get to the moon. That's got to be fake. Steve, uh, Stanley Kubrick created that. <laughs> but if you try to tell other people about how complicated it is, maybe then they're like, okay, I see why going to the moon was important. That makes a little bit more sense, I guess. It's it's hard to get my head around why nobody cared at the time. But yeah. it really was like the it was JFK kind of forcing it on people. Being like, no, this space race is important. And maybe in Russia it was different. Maybe there everybody was like, no, we're going. We're, it's very exciting. We're all going to go. We're going. We're all going to live there because it's shit here. We got to go. <laughs> it was like moving places. Like we're yeah. going to be there, be elsewhere soon. It's going to be great. <laughs> right. Figure it out. <laughs> and yeah, we've got all these various, uh, I think, heroic astronauts and cosmonauts to talk about. The I'll more people say, should know about. It, yeah. I'll say is right. Good. Uh <laughs> One uh, one to look at here is uh, an American. His name is Gordon Cooper, and he was one of a group called the Mercury Seven, which was the first seven, really just kind of a bunch of test pilots and mostly military people who then became the first astronauts and were in the Mercury missions, which were a one-person spacecraft. The astronauts were nicknamed Spam in a Can because the idea was they would just sit in the spacecraft while the automatic spacecraft did all the stuff. Because how could a human even like deal with piloting it, really? You know, like, oh, let's leave it to the ship. Now, as we know, astronauts do a lot, and I think it's partly because Gordon Cooper just figured out how to start operating the ship when everything went wrong. It's amazing. Yeah, he was <laughs> he was in orbit. It was on like the 20th orbit of Earth when every single thing on the ship that could have gone wrong went wrong. Yeah. It lost its bearings. <laughs> it didn't know where it was. It didn't know where the atmosphere was. Like It didn't know where it was pointed. Yeah. And he was like, okay, well, let's see what I can do. I'm surprised that they didn't just tie their hands up there because they wanted them to do absolutely nothing. It was just about you are human, and we want to make sure that you can live up here. Yeah, right. It's you're you're almost just like a a test of could humans be up here at yeah, all? You're not supposed to drive, anything. you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he got his bearings based on the stars, which is yeah. really cool. And then in his reentry, figured out when to deploy things based on his wristwatch. Yeah, which is incredible because it's the the window's so narrow. It's not like you have to do the same thing every fifteen seconds or so. No, it's like you have to get everything exactly right. You have to deploy the parachute at the exact right time. You have to deploy the heat shield at the right time. Like, and it has to be within like the fractions of a second. And he did it. Right, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um, the mission was specifically called Mercury Atlas Nine. It was in nineteen sixty three, and on that twentieth orbit, he lost. Altitude orientation and altitude readings. Then he lost stabilization, control, basically every part of it. And he drove by pushing and pulling on the fuel valves inside the ship that were not designed to be operated. He just figured out how to pull on them and push on them to make fuel go. And that was how he steered. And and like you said, then he used his watch to time stuff and navigated by the stars like a sailor. And he managed to get back down to Earth alive. So cool. Yeah. <laughs> we were right, right off the bat with what you want in an astronaut. And maybe this is part of the reason we were so successful with space travel early was you basically wanted James Bond as your astronaut. You don't yeah. want a guy who's only clinical. Yeah. You want a guy who's kind of a hot shot, who's like willing to take some risks and like willing to fly the plane upside down if he has to. But <laughs> you you want Captain Kirk, basically. That's what we wanted in an astronaut early on was like. Yeah. Like a cowboy of some kind. Yeah. A guy who wasn't afraid to take the reins a little bit and was a little bit cocky and thought he could he could survive even in insurmountable odds. Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. Like we, those people should be talked about more. I don't know. And not, uh, because they're like heroic and also kind of nuts in a fun way, yeah. you know, and, and it, like, it's not just a boring, they were very good people. So we need to talk about, like, they were also crazy. It's great. Yeah. They were lunatics. <laughs> Are we going to talk about, um, uh, Neil Armstrong before he got to the, the moon? Yeah. 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 Okay. He's, he's on here. We can get into him too. Yeah. I want to talk about him. Yeah. Cause that, that dovetails nicely into this because he's somebody who, I guess this will all come out in the movie that's either out now or, or will be out soon. I've, I've seen First Man. Oh, yeah? yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, the movie is mostly about the couple of missions where he almost dies. And okay. Yeah, one of them is early 60s. It was basically just a plane that slightly goes into space and comes back. Yeah. And then another one was Gemini 8, where he and another uh, astronaut, David Scott, almost super died. There was a lot of danger <laughs> there. Like. The, there's dying, then they're super dying, but they avoided it. Well, in the dying one, just regular old dying, he, <laughs> he went up, lost lost all his bearings coming back down, or the, something went completely wrong with the ship, and then he he bailed out at the last minute because he couldn't get control of it, like the yeah. very last minute. And this thing just crashed and burned in a field. And then later that day, he was in his office doing paperwork. 
Oh yeah. Well, yeah, that one was, um, it was a lunar lander training vehicle. So it was a training version of the thing he would in the future land on the moon, uh, the exact craft. And he, like you say, almost died driving it. And then according to the book about him by James Hansen that, that has been adapted into first man, Another astronaut named Alan Bean found Armstrong at his desk simply shuffling some papers <laughs> after he almost died. And then Bean didn't believe what other people told him about the horrible crash that had just happened. And he asked Armstrong and Armstrong replied, I lost control and had to bail out of the damn thing. Anyway, and then just like, <laughs> what, what do you the- want to do for lunch? <laughs> Yeah, insanity. Like, And we, especially with Armstrong, he's one of the few famous astronauts, but I feel like we don't know about all the insane, dangerous stuff that went into it. We know only about that that moment when he got on the moon. Well, actually, not even. I mean, he talks about it. He, he calls himself the first man to successfully land a, a lunar module on the moon. He doesn't talk about himself as the first man to walk on the moon because it was so much more complicated yeah. and hard for him to land it. than it was for him to just fucking step out of the ship, (laughs) which is great. I mean, I love that about him, that he tried corrects people. He's like, what you think is important isn't important. I landed a thing on the moon and then docked it with a ship that was all going about 13,000 miles an hour. Yeah. (laughs) It's also also just fun that he's the kind of person who like, can't just take the praise necessarily. <laughs> yeah. Like he has to be like, actually, and not, it's not a bragging thing. It's just like, I need to be exact with you that I, I really did a much more dangerous thing before that. <laughs> yes. Like stop complimenting me on the easy part. Please. <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah. I can't even think of like what that would equate to in society. I guess like somebody who's a doctor who is also knighted and like people keep talking about, <laughs> they keep being like, oh yeah, that's sir. And he's like, no, 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 doctor. <laughs> it's doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, Armstrong in the Gemini 8 mission, the, so the three stages were Mercury was just they tried to have one guy up in space and they're alive. And then Gemini was two guys and they practiced like kind of attaching ships to each other. And then the Apollo missions were to do the stages to get to the moon. Yeah. Armstrong and Scott, uh, his name is David Scott, the two of them were in a Gemini mission, Gemini 8, and they attached their ship to the other ship successfully. There was a ship that was just up there, an unmanned ship that was up there. And they're like, all right, well, we might as well practice attaching ourselves to this. Yeah. And they were like, ah, we'll just figure it out. Yeah. And then, oh, we did the attachment, good. And then basically their instruments didn't work right and a thruster was misfiring and they couldn't figure out which it was until the very last second, during which they were in horrible G-forces that should have made them both black out. Yeah. Uh, But Armstrong just had the insane will to not black out when a human being should and then got control of the ship again and then did an incredibly difficult landing with very little fuel left to get out of it. It's amazing. Yeah, they... The ship was revolving at one when they're connected, which is like they're connected to a giant ship that it's a they're doing one revolution a second, which is so fast. And it was basically like if you were in a tailspin in a plane that was just like on its way careening to the ground, not only were you trying to stay awake, but then he's also like. It's not even like in a movie where it's the the stakes are you just have to push a button, you have to like reach, 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 reach and grab that button, even though you're in a tailspin. He doesn't know what the problem is yet. He's like trying to stay alive and he's, he's thinking, okay, well, what are the things that could go? What are the things that could this be? This could be, well, we probably have to detach from this big ship. That would help. What else could we do? (laughs) Oh, it could be the thrusters. Maybe it's the thrusters. I'll try the thrusters. Like going through a laundry list of how to save yourself in that situation is baffling to me. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, and and it's also so much like antique technology he's working with. And, and all these capsules are very tiny, so there's very little room to maneuver. And you're in a suit that makes it very hard to have dexterity. He was just like tough enough and nuts enough to succeed at that. And, uh, you know, carry get the ball forward in terms of eventually going to the moon. It was amazing. When you mentioned that idea of these guys being knights and also doctors. I feel like that's kind of true of all astronauts and cosmonauts and it never really comes up. Like it's sort of like, well, kind of like medical school where you can study a lot of different things and then go to medical school, you mm-hmm. know? Armstrong was known for being like more of an engineer in addition to being an astronaut. There's also a, a Russian guy on here named Valery Polyakov. And Valery Polyakov is someone who was known for being a doctor in addition to an astronaut. So he was literally that thing. And he basically has devoted his life to proving that a human being can be in space forever in order to get us to Mars. He's yeah. the best. That guy, that was the guy who spent, how long did he spend in the space station? Like a, over a year? Yeah, he did. Uh, so he, and this is a more <coughs> recent guy too. This more recent guy, he did a mission in 1998 
where for the Soviet Union, he was on the Mir space station for 240 days. I thought that was really cool. Okay. Uh, and then in 1994, for not the Soviet Union anymore, but Russia, he was on Mir for 437 days. And then he returns from this 437-day uh, trip to space, which really messes with your body. Like you're a lot weaker, and, and you have to, even with doing a bunch of exercise, you lose bone mass and stuff. When he landed, they were like, oh, let's carry him out in a chair because they always need that. And he made a point of walking out of the ship and then taking someone's cigarette, having brandy. And the first thing he said was, we can fly to Mars. <laughs> we could do it. We could go. Like, he's just trying to get all of the rest of us psyched about getting there. It's yeah, great. I don't think people always realize what it, when you're in space, what it means for an astronaut to be there and how rigorous it is on your body. But it's, your body starts to eat itself, basically. Like, your, everything, your muscles start to atrophy because you're not using them because you're floating in zero gravity. Your bone density severely depletes because just the impact of walking around in your daily life and picking things up adds yeah. to your bone density. And so your body just starts to fall apart up there. Like it's not, you're not, we're not supposed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> and so how hard that is on, on these guys. And like they come back and for a guy to then step out of the, the, the ship and be like, all right, I fucking did it. Let's go to Mars. Like <laughs> what's next? Was that your cigarette? Can I have some? Can I have a drag? Okay. Yeah, thanks. It is actually very James Bond. It's like when he pops out of the wetsuit in a tux, you know? But <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> so we just get some martini. Yeah. Because there's also like a surprising whole history of space stations going relatively far back. Like the U.S. Had briefly had one called Skylab in the 70s. And then uh, the Russians had Mir for a long, long time, which I think like if people follow past astronauts like Chris Hadfield, who were in the International Space Station, you see what's a pretty cramped space, but at least feels a little fun and they have Wi-Fi and stuff. Mm -hmm. Mir, terrible, very cramped, very bad, <laughs> uh, very underfunded by the, the Soviets slash Russians because their country was collapsing. And he just spent over a year just in that little thingy mm. demanding to prove to us that we could survive a very long mission to Mars if we needed to. It's great. And I had never heard of him until we were like putting this together. That's what, I mean, a lot <laughs> of the cosmonauts are like that, where it's like, there are so many cosmonauts that we just don't know about that did incredible things. And they, it was even more, they were even more cowboys than we were probably because they had to endure so much. The Russians were so serious about getting to, uh, oh, the Soviets, I should say, I were so serious about getting to into space and getting to the moon that they were willing to forgo a lot of safety precautions <laughs> to get there. And so these guys were like out in the middle of nowhere on their own, literally on their own, trying to figure this shit out. I mean, a lot of them didn't make it, but. Uh, yeah, I think maybe maybe that brings us into the the darkest hero, which is a lot of like late 1950s cosmonauts that we will never know the names of or anything about. There's um uh, this mostly draws on a cracked article called Five Soviet Space Programs That Prove Russia Was Insane by Evan Simon. And it gets into the thing where. People do know the name Yuri Gagarin. He's basically one of the few Soviets you're ever taught about in American school as being like exciting and because he was the first human in space. But he went up in 1961 and he almost definitely had a lot of coworkers who were also sent to space but didn't make it back because they died up there. Mm -hmm. And the Soviet government just suppressed any information about it and didn't tell people. Yeah, and... and a lot of times it was due to somebody, a human error or somebody's fault that they, that, that it didn't yeah. work and they just bury it. They just bury that information. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then they bury that that person never existed. There are a lot of old photographs of these cosmonauts all like hanging out. And then yeah. you can see where men have been airbrushed out of those photos after they burned up and reentry. <laughs> yeah. There, the article has side by sides of <coughs> like, it's a group photo of some guys. And then suddenly the next version, there's a weird set of stairs where a guy used to be. And, and it's because of, you know, I mean, they would airbrush out people for just making Stalin mad in life, you know? So they <laughs> definitely true, yeah. did this with embarrassing uh, space failures. Yeah. Yeah. The reason that we know about a lot of those guys is that German scientists, because uh, there was Operation Paperclip for us. That's what we called it, which was where we got a bunch of German scientists after World War II. Yeah. yeah. And Soviets also. And we were just, it was just a fight over scientists, basically. And right. It was like, we've defeated the Nazis. And yeah. there are many of these scientists who hopefully didn't have Nazi principles. And uh, which which of the two powers gets to have their services in the yeah. immediate space race and Cold War after? One of the ones that went to the USSR was the scientist Herman Oberth. I think he, he went to the US, but yeah. Oh, he yeah. did? Okay. There was a German scientist who worked with the Soviet cosmonauts for a long time and was aware of how many had actually died. 
in the time that they were in the hunt for the space race. Otherwise, I mean, these stories never would have existed for us. We never would have known that these cosmonauts just didn't make it. Oh, also the radio transmissions. That's the other way that we know that, that yeah. these things happen. Yeah, this is a, uh, there were, I don't know why it was these guys who picked it up, but reportedly there are two Italian brothers named Achilles and Giovanni Battista Giudica Gordiglia. Cordiglia. And they uh, they built a radio system where they were just trying to pick up transmissions from out in space. And they kept hearing from Russian people in immense distress up in space. Yeah. And uh, and it's really, really spooky uh, what they were hearing. Is This is basically that moment from Gravity when the Inuit man is tuning with his radio and he can hear Sandra Bullock up in space. And they're like just talking yeah. to each other. And she's like, are those dogs? <laughs> and I just listened to dogs for a little bit. And like, like it, yeah. it was basically the same situation, except only one direction. These men could hear what was going on, but they couldn't communicate with them. And the stuff that they were hearing from space is so dark and hard. To, it's like they're hearing people say, you know, it's getting hot. It's getting very, very hot. Please answer me. Please answer me. And then screams. And then the, the most haunting one was they picked up one that said conditions growing worse. Why don't you answer? We are going slower. The world will never know about us. <laughs> and then it shut off. Yeah. <laughs> and so these cosmonauts, they knew. I mean, they knew what the consequences were going into it early on that like if you don't succeed at this, we're going to bury you. Yeah, you know, you're no one will remember who you are. We'll make sure of it. Right, cuz it like uh, I guess just the political liability of it cuz mm -hmm. I I now I keep thinking about Everest cuz it came up before, but it's a good I think that and Antarctica also, they're good parallels because like with the Arctic, there was a heroic age of Arctic exploration. And it was called that because individual people took on extremely dangerous, life-threatening like missions to get up to it because they just wanted to do it. I think then we heard about it if it didn't work out. And then yeah. with these space missions, there was enough government credibility in it that I guess they just sat on it if uh, if it didn't work out in Russia. They used to raise these people. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. So there were just like a bunch of these heroes that... I guess we just like Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at them. I don't know what we do. They, they were all out there. They were working very hard. They're still out there. A lot of them. Yeah. A lot. Of, they, they, oh, there was one where those two men, those two Italian men heard the heartbeats. I don't know if they were connected to some sort of monitor oh or something like that. And they heard yeah. the heartbeats of a man as he, they assumed he was drifting further and further out into space. And like you could hear his heartbeats and his breathing. And then as both got slower. And then just stopped. Oh man! <laughs> as he just went further and further out there, and so yeah, that there's just a yeah. Screw Voyager. We should have sent that. We already sent a bunch of a bunch of Soviets out there into space. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. just pick one of those up. That's way better. Seeing all the DNA inside of a human as opposed to just trying to read it off a golden record. <laughs> <laughs> they did a lot more than we did. Carl Sagan, eat it. Do you want to just talk about that Voyager story? Just very cool. Yeah. So uh, Voyager and Voyager Two were. Two unmanned ships that were launched. The original program for them was to just go to Jupiter and Saturn and get close-up imagery of those places, kind of learn what they could about those about their moons. The, with Voyager is how we found out about some of the moons on Saturn. And then after that, they were going to slingshot around the planet. They would catch the orbit of it, slingshot further out into space. And all that means is that they wanted to send these things past where the sun's reach, outside of the solar system. And one's way ahead. Voyager 2 is way ahead of Voyager 1 right now. Why is it way ahead? That's interesting. Uh, because of their, they just have different trajectories, oh, like okay. the things that they were sent to do. And one was released later. But Voyager 2 is the one that everyone's like, when we talk about Voyager, we mean Voyager 2. And it's beyond the sun's grasp. It's the furthest thing we've ever sent into space. And it's in the Oort cloud right now, which is just like this like weird plasma gunk that lives out on the outside of our solar system and will it will take like 22,000 years before it's beyond that but in on this on voyager like this is the second portion of its of its plan and no one really anticipated it would get this far everybody thought it would just do the jupiter and saturn photos and then that would be it uh, they were hoping that maybe uh, this could happen but they didn't really know that it would yeah and what they put on it was just in case this actually worked was they put carl sagan was in charge of this program to put a golden record on each of the Voyagers that has a little description in pictographs on the front of it of how to use the record. And on the record is all the things that they thought were valuable from human and human civilization and also just Earth, 
which is a really cool thing to yeah. have, like a really cool program to be in charge of. Well, um, and they sent this uh, in like the seventies, right? So it's 70s. like a record, like a, a, you think of a music record. Yeah. That. Sorry. Yeah. When I say a record, I mean a literal record. It's like a big 14 inch golden record or like 16 inch golden record. Yeah. For like a, like a turntable. Yeah. yeah. The, the <laughs> amount of information that it can hold on it is about one millionth of what your phone can hold because they just didn't have the technology then. And so, but what they've got on there, they've got greetings in every single language. Well, not every language, uh, a lot of the languages around the world. Um, and every country kind of got their own, they got to say what they wanted. You know, they weren't just like, say hi. Like you were like, okay, well, what do you, what would you like to say as a steward of this galaxy? What would you like to say? Right. And so they would be like <laughs> greetings from the children of, of America or like they're all really, they're nice. They're nice. It's really cute. And then there are pictures of our DNA structure, pictures of people playing sports. There's a picture of a guy just measuring an alligator. Like some of the stuff that they chose, I'm like, I know that there's a reason for this and I just don't get it. Um, <laughs> and then there are, there are a bunch of songs. Johnny B. Good is on there. There's like a, this ancient Chinese song. They, they've picked songs from a bunch of different cultures. Another language that they have in there is a whale language. They have like whales greeting each other. And then they cool. have a, a sound essay, which is just a, this is the coolest part. It's a bunch of sounds from earth that he thought, and that the team obviously thought was really valuable. And one of those sounds is a, a mother cooing to her baby for the first time uh, when she first gets it on her after uh, giving labor and the sounds of um, waves. There's some sounds of birds and different animals. And then Annie Druian, who is also working on the project with him, She's a cosmologist. She did an EKG of the sounds of her body uh, and her mind. So yeah, it's she, so conceptual. Yeah. It's just like we don't know how aliens communicate. Right. If they can, if they can uncover this, let's. It yeah. would be really great for them to know. Maybe they can tell what she's thinking. If they're telepathic, then this would be an easy way for them to tell what she's thinking about. That's so and cool. And so they did the sounds of her. Yeah, her body and her mind as she thought about civilization, as she thought about humanity, she thought about Earth, and then. She secretly saved the last like 12 seconds to just think about Carl. And that's really cool because while they were creating this whole thing, Annie and, and Carl fell in love. And the day before she went to do this, he called her on the phone and they sort of confessed their love to each other for the first time. And the day before, wow. Yeah, and she was so excited yeah. and so in love with Carl that that was something that she wanted to send into space. It's like this sensation of, love and like the best thing that she could possibly like humanity on its best day. What would that look like? Yeah. Well, it's somebody in love and she wanted to send that out into the cosmos. So like even after the earth is gone, the earth is, you know, eaten up by the sun or whatever's going to happen to us billions and billions of years, this record is going to outlive all of us and it's going to be out there. And it on it is just this representation of the best of what we have to offer. And I love that that's out there. Yeah. So when I talk about like, us extending our senses as, as opposed to our sensibilities. That's what I mean with the sensibilities. Like that's a much more fun thing to talk about and give to kids than uh, just be like, okay, well now we're sending another rover to Mars because we want to know what's under the surface. Do you think that there's mud down there? What if there's mud? It's <laughs> <laughs> like, fuck it, we got mud here. I don't care. <laughs> I'm muddy right now. <laughs> now that, yeah, that's so perfect. Basically everything that we do is the context it's in. And so if it's just, we looked at another thing. Okay, fine. Yeah. But if you can build in extra things or extra missions. Why of, it matters to you. Yeah. Like why yeah. it matters to humanity as a whole and, and, yeah, that, that story about Voyager is so cool. And also because of what it meant at the time. You think about how much the United States hates space, has always hated space. <laughs> we just don't care about it unless it's in retrospect, in which case we're like, yeah, very cool, JFK, send a man to the moon. But at the time, nobody gave a shit. It, now it's even very hard to get people excited about space. Space Force is not an exciting prospect to us. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that, that's even like the least exciting version yeah, of it to me military is there. that we're going to like kick its ass or something. Yes. It's not, not for me. And so <laughs> at the time, you think about how much money Voyager cost and what went into the program. What went into even Carl Sagan's little tiny sliver of that program. It was millions and millions of dollars uh, for this guaranteed fruitless whimsical cause that we, I can't believe that it was ever approved. And I love that it was because it's such a romantic notion to send something of humanity out into space. It's like, this is an ambassador of who we are. There's no other species that's going to find that. If there is somebody out there in space, then 
this thing won't wander into something else's orbit. This thing will not be picked up by another species, most likely. But we tried and we had to try. It's like, what else could we do? We, we feel that urge inside of us to go out there and explore and to try and connect with something beyond ourselves. And like, let's just send whatever we can. Like, let's do what we can and let's do it right. Let's make something really good just in case. It's like Wayne Gretzky, when he was hitting slap shots off into the sun, when he said, you, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. <laughs> Wait, hitting them into the sun? Well, I'm just, I, he's not an actual astronaut. Uh, uh, but Wayne Gretzky did say you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. And I just sort of like the imagery of him hitting slap shots like into the, into the atmosphere and like deep into space. I mean, like, right. hope some aliens find this one. <laughs> with almost anything with space, it's also something where, Working on it, you're basically aiming for a success that you probably won't see. Like in a specific yeah. case, like landing on the moon, those people knew they would get to see it if they did it. But other stuff with like even the uh, thing on the scale of a mission to Mars is going to take some time. Yeah. So like it's really heroic when people put time into that, knowing that they might not get to see it or be a part of it or be the, the person who gets there. Absolutely. Yeah. That you won't see it into fruition and maybe even in. In your lifetime. I mean, the people who worked on this on Voyager were like, okay, well, the, the Jupiter and Saturn stuff will be cool, but man, I I'm, I'm really happy for my great, great grandchildren for Voyager. Yeah. Like some point we'll know, we'll know when it's outside of the Oort cloud. We'll know when it's doing a list because it still has power. I mean, they shut it down every once in a while, but they fire it up again to make sure that, it, you know, they, all its systems are still working and where kind of it is. They get a sense of where it is. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Also just the Oort cloud. I feel like that's, that's just a whole thing I didn't even really know about. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. So that's, as far as like the dry logistics of, of what it's actually teaching us, it is teaching us a lot about the end of the solar system and where that is. Cause we were kind of speculating and guessing at what it was. We kept thinking Voyager was outside of the solar system. Then we were like, Oh no, it turns out that there's this other, this other like shell around us that right. we didn't know existed before. And it's in that right now. Okay. Now it's out. No, now it's in the Oort cloud. <laughs> now it's in the, oh, it seems to be stuck in some plasma. We don't really know what's out there. Um, and so they're finding all that out right now. That's amazing. Yeah. And worth doing. I'm, I'm into it. I say so. <laughs> We would like to thank Squarespace for their support of this week's show. Isn't that fun? It is. Great. And they want to help you out because they can set you up with a domain and a website that is perfect for whatever you want to do. It could be anything. I dare you to come up with something that you couldn't put on a website with them. What happens if you win the dare? Nothing. It's just a threat. But Squarespace is the way to go because they build websites that are optimized for mobile right out of the box. They also come from beautiful templates created by world-class designers. And then you can click and drag and arrange and set it up exactly how you want it without doing a bunch of crazy coding and, and figuring out how to make lines of code work. I'm just going to keep saying code because it's a word that scares me, but you don't have to deal with it with Squarespace. And they also make buying domains very, very easy. It is very, very fun to have exactly the domain you want, and they make it easy to get that and set up. And then you'll be able to tell people your website easily, because that's a key thing. If you try to say the name of your website and it's all weird and confusing, people won't get to it. But you'll have the right one thanks to the help from Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash cracked offer code cracked. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small how-do-they-do-that-sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But... The best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. One, zero, zero, 100, that's a lot, and it's because after all, hey, you spend one-third of your life sleeping. Or less if you're irresponsible, but you should be sleeping, and you should be doing it comfortably. I do it comfortably because I have a Casper mattress, and the box is kind of freaky. 
in a great way. It just pops right out of it after it's, you know, a box that's very easy to move around and maneuver, you know, because the size is so convenient. And then suddenly an entire mattress comes out of it like a like a clown car or, or something. It's very exciting. And I think you should get one for yourself. So get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That's casper.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. One thing to repeat from the top of the show, I'll keep this super brief because you probably heard it there. Our first ever Cracked podcast tour is this spring, April 11th in Chicago, April 12th in St. Paul, Minnesota. Watch Cracked social media and mine for ticket links that should go up Wednesday. I hope you'll check them out and join us on our live tour. Yay, new thing, really great. And just to jump back to the cosmonauts, because there's one other story that I really love. Oh, sure. They were in a ship that was so ill-equipped for a human body. Alexei Leonov and Pavel Belyayev, who were in a, a Russian mission called Voskhod 2 in March 1965. And the Voskhods were basically their Gemini, where it's two people. But they did it by just kind of jury-rigging a one-man ship. So they were like <laughs> sitting on top of each other. Yes, that's right. Yeah, if one of them on re-entry, like if one of them wanted to uh, work with the controls, the other one had to basically, he had to lie across the other guy and the guy had to hold him in place. Or yeah. he had to lie across the seats. And so the ship was just not designed for them. And in re-entry, like they got off course and they ended up 500 miles away from where they were supposed to be in the Ural Mountains, I think is what they're called. Yeah. And when they, they landed up there, they were up there for a long time because you can't get you can't get ships up. You can't get planes up there to them. You can't get people up there for a very long time. So they were just stuck up there making fires in the woods and like fending off wolves. Yeah. <laughs> These cosmonauts come uh, come back from space and almost get eaten by wolves. <laughs> That's such the human condition. But it really, in the uh, USSR space program, they made specific guns for cosmonauts. And yeah. the guns were... They were like a sawed-off shotgun that turned, was made into a, a single handheld piece. And there, you, there's one in a, in a, maybe in the Smithsonian, somewhere there's in a museum, you can see a picture of it. And it's wild. It's just like these two giant chambers on it. <laughs> yeah, we've got the, the name here. It's the TP-82 Cosmonaut Survival Pistol. <laughs> yeah. And it's because uh, these two guys, Leonov and Belyayev, they, like you say, were hundreds of miles off course, and they ended up in crazy mountains in the middle of Russia, where it took two days for people to get to them and then rescue them in the sense that they just helped them ski back. They like gave they them still skis. had to do skiing to get back after all this. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, they couldn't even. Yeah, they didn't rescue them. They just came in. They're like, okay, here's some skis and some poles. Yeah, <laughs> see you at home. <laughs> and then, and then the two of them had to ski with their own rescuers to get out. But they early in the Russian space program, they were sending people up with just a regular small little pistol. And then after this, where those two guys almost got eaten by animals after they got back, uh, they designed this crazy weapon which was a combination of two shotgun barrels and a rifle barrel. And then the buttstock of it on the end had a machete hidden in it. So it was this insane weapon because most cosmonauts ended up in Siberia when they came back. That's right. Which is uh, uh, pretty cold and it is also land. Uh, so it's full of animals and uh, dangers. And so they had to immediately after their space mission, just like protect themselves in the wilderness. <laughs> <laughs> Until they were rescued. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I love that. It's like if, if in gravity, Sandra Bullock finally crash lands back on earth, crawls up the shore and is, there's just like a grizzly there eating some salmon. It's like, oh, this will be way better. And just <laughs> mauls Sandra Bullock when she gets back. Like I didn't yeah. see that coming in a space movie. Somebody got eaten by a bear. <laughs> <laughs> one other thing with the, those two guys, one of them, Leonov did the first spacewalk anyone had ever done uh, when they were up oh, in space. Yeah. And so he he's doing all this horrible woods stuff after not just going to space, but also doing a spacewalk and having it go wrong because they had basically designed his suit poorly. They hadn't accounted for that it would be in space. And so there were a bunch of pressure problems with it and it inflated a lot. And it looked like he wouldn't be able to get back into the spacecraft because <laughs> he inflated too much to get back in the door, <laughs> which is such a ridiculous problem. But also he managed to work it out because that's um, he's amazing. What a great guy. <laughs> he, yeah, he was able to release some of the gas from his suit. But uh, 
but he then he got the bends from it. So he, as he was releasing yeah. the gas from his suit, it was basically like a scuba diver rising to the surface as fast as possible. Right. But still, like, <laughs> what a, you know, how, how humiliating of a way to die if you would have. I mean, if you're stuck outside your ship and you're you just ballooned out and you're like, oh, God, <laughs> I, I can't, can't be like this. I can't just be a balloon out here in space. Right. Everyone's yeah. going to laugh when they find it. <laughs> Well, cause a suit doing that, it's like the joke of, oh, this astronaut can't stop Barton. You know, <laughs> like it's like a, a, just a horrible sight gag like that, but it was actually a very dangerous thing. And he, uh, yeah, the walk was supposed to take 12 minutes. It ended up taking 20. And by the time he deflated the suit and felt the bends and everything like that and got back in the ship, there was sweat in the suit up to his knees. So he had just filled. Oh, gross. Yeah, it's disgusting. Uh, but also he sweated that much in the extreme toil of trying to not die doing a spacewalk. He could have drowned from his own sweat. Yeah, oh, yeah, if it got high enough, yeah. Oh, man, that's so gross. That's so high <laughs> for it to get. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, just thinking about that, like filling your entire boots with Yeah, yeah it's terrible. Uh, but anyway, so he did all that, then fought off like wolves. <laughs> <laughs> and then skied to safety. <laughs> So when in First Man, there's a brief scene where this was a real thing. There was an astronaut named Edward White who was supposed to do the first ever spacewalk. But then he sees on TV this guy laying off doing it. And he's like, ah, damn it. I was going to be me, you know? Yeah. So that was all I knew about, oh, okay, a Russian was the first spacewalk. But yeah, it turns no. out it took all this. <laughs> yeah, the story's way better. Yeah. yeah. So the the space shuttle, that was a thing that was like throughout, throughout uh, a lot of our lives and very exciting. Uh, but I feel like most of us don't actually know of any space shuttle astronauts. You know, like the names don't jump to mind. It's right. not really a thing. This was a mission in 1992. Pierre Thuo, Richard Hebb, Thomas Akers, and Daniel C. Brandenstein they were in, a, it was STS-49 was the, the mission number, but their job was to repair a communication satellite in orbit around Earth. And so they did it by trying some more high-tech ways first, but they didn't work. And then they ended up just catching the satellite physically out in space, which is insanely <laughs> dangerous. With their hands? With their hands, yeah. <laughs> NASA gave them some kind of, it's called like a capture bar. It's some kind of contraption that would mm -hmm. catch the satellite. It didn't work. They tried again. It didn't work. And so then Brandon Stein flew an entire space shuttle within a few feet of this satellite that was 4.5 tons. And then the other three guys just sort of reached out of it and pulled the satellite into themselves, which is insanely dangerous and just to fix a satellite like they and I had never heard of this and I don't think anyone ever talked about it that's wild yeah because it's like it's like I'm trying to just think of what to compare it to I guess like two giant cruise liners like two big cruise liners out on the ocean and you're like one's we have to get close enough to one that we can all reach out our hands and just pull it in and then get on it right which is <laughs> so nuts yeah <laughs> Because like even I feel like the precision of that, like in zero gravity, you could easily just boink into each other of when course. you try to stop. It's just so hard. <laughs> and you're dead. Everybody's dead. Yeah. <laughs> if those two ships hit each other. Yeah. Because then they, it's that opposite reaction. And then also whatever damage you did, it's like sends you into a different trajectory. Like that's the end. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's cool. Well, have you ever seen a, a space shuttle in life? Because yeah. there's the one in LA here. Yep. My, uh, I took my son to see it. Okay, great. Yeah. Describe its size. It takes up an entire airplane hangar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where you would park all of your airplanes. Right. Because one thing fits. Yeah. And, and those those missions were going on kind of all the time in the 90s. And, and we don't like ever talk about the people who did them. But they were doing things like this where it's uh, uh, some of the hardest in space stuff anybody's ever done. One of my first like space toys, I think, was a, a model of something like Endeavor where it was like, you have an actual shuttle as opposed to just the early landing modules and things from Neil Armstrong. Those look like just a, fl a very phallic. They're just like a big straight line rocket yeah. that has a little thing at the top where everybody sits in. But the shuttle is the first thing that looks like what you think of as a spaceship from, from a human spaceship. Yeah. It's sort like, of plane oh. shaped. And yeah. Yeah. It's just this big white and black plane shaped thing where you're like, <laughs> yes, that I can see like jet setting around from planet to planet out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Right. I wouldn't be like uh, spamming a Campbell guy in a tube. I would be like in my spaceship. Yeah. That's why I think it was so hard. It was so hard for me to picture when I was young of like what, what was actually necessary in the spaceship for a human to be in. Cause I was like, none of this looks right. None of this is like, I, in my head, I had this ideal of like what it would, what a plane should be or like what a ship should be. And Endeavor finally met that. And I was like, yes. Okay. I get it now. This is what they're on. We just attach this to the side of a rocket. That's how we get up there. Yeah. Also just thinking about those Apollo missions and the things they were in. Uh, we've got an astronaut here named Pete Conrad. And I, I don't think anyone knows who Pete Conrad is. He never comes up or anything. He was the third person to walk on the moon. He was uh, he was on Apollo 12. He is after Armstrong and Aldrin, the third human to ever walk on the moon. There's other things about him we've got too, but I realized that like only the successful Apollo 11 and disastrous Apollo 13 people are famous. <laughs> yeah. But there were uh, five other missions that landed on the moon and people walked on them. There's like 10 astronauts. We've got the names here. We'll, yeah. we'll footnote them. Not famous, not well known, just weird to me. It feels like majesty maybe isn't a renewable resource. And that's sort of sad, but I think that <laughs> like you, you think about something like going to the, to the Grand Canyon, you go there now and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is really big. It's big. It's big. But it doesn't mean the same thing as if you were the first person to see it. Oh, or like yeah. One of the first or like the second even. Where you'd be like, holy shit. Like <laughs> it, somehow it just, you, it, it, you deplete it of its majesty by so many people doing it that it suddenly seems less important and valuable. And I guess that's maybe why we don't remember those people's names. I wonder if Michael Collins thought that he would be the second guy to walk on the moon. If oh. like when, when everybody else got off the ship, when Buzz and, and Neil Armstrong <laughs> went down in the lunar module, if he, they were like, don't worry about it, Michael. You're going to be the, you'll be the next one. Don't worry yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> and he was like, okay, all right. And then he got back to earth, was all ready for it. And like, actually, we're going to have another guy do it. <laughs> I was going to say, according to the list, he was not, he did not get to go. He did not go. Just to, just to make them famouser. Apollo 12, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean walked on the moon. 14 was Alan Shepard and Edgar Mitchell. 15 was David Scott and James Irwin. David Scott was from that Gemini 8 mission where Neil Armstrong almost died. He was the other guy. John Young and Charles Duke were on Apollo 16, and Eugene Cernan and Harrison Schmidt, spelled different than me, uh, were on Apollo 17. So, they, yeah, they all did that. Good for them. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But, and Pete Conrad, who we mentioned, he does that on Apollo 12. Then later, that first American space station, Skylab, uh, it only went up for uh, less than a year, or it was only manned for less than a year in 73 to 74, but it was just built by the U.S. It was their first space station. And it immediately didn't work when they sent it up. There were a bunch of problems with the solar panels and the electrical systems. And so then he was on a mission with two other guys to go and fix it. And they had to, like, go fix Skylab and get it working. And they tethered themselves to the outside of it and tried to pry open the thing that would uh, just sort of release the solar panels. And they pried it open way too good. It, like, sprung open (laughs) and whacked Pete Conrad into space and he was just <laughs> swinging around the uh, he was on a tether but he was just swinging around the space station willy nilly basically it's like the movie Gravity like he he was yeah. just in extreme danger in orbit for a long time wow <laughs> oh man not famous nobody knows who he is yeah yeah <laughs> but survived miraculously yeah oh cool there's a, a one other guy I want to talk about and I can't remember his name he's the guy who insists you never go into space without a hammer I, th- I think that's also P. Conrad. Okay. P. Yeah. I, that guy is incredible because he <laughs> he's now solved two life-threatening problems with a hammer in space. Yeah, it was it was these two missions. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, Skylab then, they got the panels released, but it still wasn't turning on. And so they realized, oh, we need to fix the electrical system. And he was like, I know what I'll do. And then he went out and just hit it with a hammer <laughs> a lot. And that fixed it. <laughs> and then it turned on. <laughs> because he had precedent. He had been on that other mission where... They Ap- put, Apollo 12 on the moon. Apollo 12, yeah. yeah where the, the plutonium wasn't dripping through that certain area that, or like it wasn't feeding the plutonium through properly. And so he just started like hitting the plutonium, like at the, the casing of the plutonium with a hammer over and over to try and break it up. Let's linger on that a bit. So it turns out, uh, and I didn't know this until we were reading about it, but uh, parts of the Apollo missions were powered by plutonium. <laughs> and that is a, a pretty volatile substance. And he, uh, their generator to run the experiments was plutonium powered. And so he hit it with a hammer to get it to turn on. <laughs> 
which in in a Looney Tunes cartoon would blow up Daffy Duck, right? Yeah. Like that. Then he dies. Uh, well, no, then he just puts his bill back on the front of his face. Right, but, his bill gets twisted around. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, hit plutonium with a hammer. I mean, if you were the other person on that mission, you'd be like, don't, don't do that. Don't. Hey. Sorry, Conrad, don't, please don't, <laughs> please don't do that. <laughs> I, like, I will find another way. <laughs> yeah. And we've got this quote here. They asked him about it and he just said, quote, never come to the moon without a hammer. <laughs> uh, correct. It seems. Yeah. <laughs> Saved him twice. I That's believe him. Really good idea. Let's look at, uh, so this is, this is a thing. This is a Soviet thing. We've talked about how the Soviet space program got a lot of people killed and it was through a lot of just being sloppy and being secretive and et cetera. But there's a story here about Yuri Gagarin, who we talked about, and then his very, very good friend, Vladimir Komarov. And uh, because the two of them were the Komarov was the main pilot. Gagarin was the backup for a Soviet mission, uh, Soyuz 1. And uh, Soyuz was like kind of their Apollo was the idea. They didn't succeed, but that was the plan. And they wanted to launch Soyuz 1 in 1967, partly because that's the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution. Because uh, that's their uh, terrible uh, anniversary, you know, and uh, <laughs> and they um, so they were like, we're going to launch the thing. You're going to go. And then Gagarin inspected it and the spaceship, he decided had 203 separate structural problems. And so he, he was like, hey, we should fix these before we send anyone. And the Soviets were like, no, anniversary time, you're going. And so then Komarov and Gagarin basically got in a competition with each other to be the person who would pilot it so that their other guy, best friend, wouldn't uh, be the pilot and die. That's they were so like, sad. I will die for you. And he was like, no, I will die for you. Yeah. And Komarov ended up being the one to to go. But Gagarin showed up on the day of the launch in a spacesuit and tried to like beat him to it. Because uh, they were such good friends and they cared about each other that much. You know, it's like a Greek uh, tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so sad. Yeah. That should be a movie. That's the weird, the most ironic space race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very Death of Stalin, the movie yeah. space race. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm certain that guy died horribly on the launch. Yeah, I guess they, according to this article, he they launched it. It had several system failures right away. He actually managed to work a lot of those out. And then all of the reentry parachutes got tangled. And so it just like crashed. It didn't land, you know. Yep. But he he so he did a lot of very uh, you know uh, Gordon Cooper esque moves and it didn't it didn't work because it was just so broken. Yeah. Uh, but the Soviets were like, we got to celebrate Lenin, so you're gone. They weren't ready to go. Yeah, early, it's time. You, man, having a push date or a release date that's <laughs> like yeah. it gets everybody in problems. Yeah, CEOs, yeah. listen up. You don't need such a hard and fast release date for your product. <laughs> you end up getting people killed. Yeah. Uh, hey, most of our listeners are CEOs. You'll turn them away. <laughs> no. <laughs> Another Russian here, because uh, those guys I feel like should be heroes of just friendship, you know? This Russian succeeded and survived and was also the first woman in space. Uh, her name was Valentina Tereshkova, and she went to space in 1963. And I was only ever taught about the first American, Sally Ride, who was way after Yeah. Her. Sally Ride died recently, right? And this woman, everybody oh, brought up know. this woman, I think, on Twitter and social media uh, and stuff. Everyone started bringing up this woman yeah, um, because they're like, no, she wasn't the first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's room for more than one woman. Yeah. <laughs> they're all heroic. Like, let's, <laughs> yeah. you know, let's be cool. But yeah, Valentina Tereshkova went up in Vostok 6 in 1963. She went around the earth 48 times and it took 70 hours and 50 minutes which all put together when she landed there in 1963, that was more time than all Americans had been in space put together. It was the longest Ooh. flight uh, anybody had done. Boy, they were <laughs> really willing to take their chances with their cosmonauts. Yeah, yeah. They were really just like the next guy up. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah, well, I think on both sides of it too, like a lot of them were military. I feel like maybe they just applied that idea of, you know, it's sort of like the military where this is the work we do and it's dangerous and we're just going to do it. Unfortunately, the Soviets had a horrible government running it. So they were right. in way more danger than they needed to be. But I think on both sides, there was kind of a decision of it's worth it. I'm just going to do it. You know? Yeah, it is. It, it's strange how little precaution they put into the safe for the safety of the people inside those ships. Yeah. Um, but it, it does make sense from their historical precedent, which is World War II, which is right before that, where 
men were had no gun at all that were running behind the front lines of men who had guns. And when that man in front of them with the gun died and got shot, the next guy would just pick up the gun and run with it. One other thing about Tereshkova, I feel like almost everybody we talked about, they were on that standard astronaut cosmonaut track of they were some kind of scientist or engineer or pilot or something. And then it fed into being an astronaut. Valentina Tereshkova was, she had to leave school when she was 16 to work to support her family. And then she got work at a textile factory. And while she was there, she joined like a parachute club. Because I guess they figured they had so many textiles around, they could have like a parachute club for some of the employees. What? And so then she got way into being a parachutist. And then the Soviets said, we would like to get a woman into the program. And I don't know what ladies with parachute skills, that's probably transferable. To space travel. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And so that was how she's she's probably one of the most like regular person kind of people who's ever been in space. You yeah. know, like she was a factory worker and then she's she was in blue space. Collar, yeah, a blue collar parachutist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like those skills translate. Head up there. Yeah, yeah. Just go. Yeah. Oh wow. Which is that's a, that's like such a brave thing to me to go up without the years and years of training and often doctorates that these people usually have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. Good for her. Yeah. So more people should know about her. The oh, podcast is doing it. We're the heroes. Yeah, <laughs> great. I guess it's just a thing to wonder, but like, how do we get more people excited about space? I don't know. Yeah. Like, like maybe it's just the enormousness of it or the, the kind of denseness of the subject or something. I don't know why it's not more popular than it is. I don't know. Oh, it's very difficult to see the forest of the trees with space. <laughs> I mean, neither of those <laughs> things are out there, but, but, but it's so easy to get bogged down because everything has to be so specific and crucial to getting you there in the first place Yeah, that it's very easy to get bogged down in all the cold logistics of it, that it's very hard to see the romantic ideal of why you're doing it. And when you lose sight of that, then uh, it becomes very boring and dry. But if you believe in the need to get to the top of Everest, the need to know what the bottom of the ocean looks like, this need for humanity to see what the end of infinity looks like, of like what's the <laughs> what's the furthest we can go and what does that look like? Yeah. That's true in everybody. And as long as you still feel that when you talk about space, you're like, oh, I see why this is valuable. I, I understand why we need to go. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, And also that's, all you need to do as a regular person, you know, is just like think that and be supportive of people who'd fund it. Cause you don't have to like go yourself. Other people will yeah. calculate it and build it and go, you know, it's I, great. They try to get people excited about Mars because Mars is going to be, we we're going to put a colony up there. And mm -hmm. they were like, that's how we're going to get people excited about space again. A tangible way it can affect their lives. You can go to Mars, <laughs> which also felt really infeasible and, and silly to me because no, no, you won't. None of us are going to Mars. And even if you did, like you're not coming back, you just you're there till the end of time because no one can come get you. Yeah, it seems like it's one way. Yeah. yeah. But that you're you're alive in a time when we have the technology and the capacity to do it is very, very cool. And just be supportive of that, of us reaching beyond what we were ever really meant to reach for. <laughs> I'm now starting to realize that, that science fiction and like a Greek tragedy are very similar. And that it's just like this quest for knowledge you're not supposed to have. And then there's right. some ultimate hard, horrible consequence to having it. Oedipus and like all of those are like these things you're not supposed to know. And like, you just need to know it and you just keep working towards that knowledge of it. And when you finally get it, then there's some horrible consequence. And that's every science fiction movie there is too, is like, this human yeah. knowledge, that's our quest. Human knowledge, human knowledge, human knowledge. We're, we're trying to get this new thing, discover this new thing. Oh shit, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of art and culture that's telling you not to do this and not to trust that instinct in you. But I say, ignore that. I say, indulge in your desire to like expand and get as far as you possibly can and, and reach out to new places that no one has ever gone before. And then you will understand why space travel is fun and cool. Right, like don't get hung up on uh, the Ridley Scott's Alien movies yeah. where going to space gets you eaten by a bug monster penis thing. Right. Because like, that's not going to happen. It's made up. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Soren Bowie for being a pal and making the time. And uh, Soren is one of the people who made Cracked a thing. Just, just full stop completely. So I really appreciate him, uh, uh, you know, sticking around and doing stuff with us. 
And in our food notes, you will find helpful tips on a lot of things, mainly how to see American Dad, the show Soren writes on today. It's great. It returns with new episodes on TBS on January 28th, 2019, which is pretty soon, and I hope you'll check them out. We've also got Soren's spaciest cracked writing, some incredible additional stuff about those space heroes discussed today, and an extra link to info about a fascinating museum in Culver City, California, that's Greater LA. The museum is called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. It is a hard place to describe, uh, but I bring it up because one section of it is a tribute to the dogs of the Soviet space program. Back when it was not manned missions yet, the United States was mostly using uh, monkeys and apes, and then the Soviets were using dogs. And it's a really, really strange, beautiful tribute to them at this Museum of Jurassic Technology. So if you're in the area, go see that crazy gallery thing, and, and that's a fun tip from me. What else is going on? We have our next L.A. live show, speaking of this area, at UCB Sunset Theater, February 23rd at 9 p.m. It's an Oscars-based show. And like I said earlier, uh, it's basically the most exciting announcement we've made on here in a long time, is that we have our first ever Cracked podcast tour this spring. Live shows will be at Lincoln Hall in Chicago on April 11th and at Amsterdam Bar and Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota on April 12th. Chicago and the Twin Cities, we are coming to you in April. And I hope you'll join us because it's unprecedented and it's something I've always wanted to do with this show is bring it to more places because, you know, we're a website that's all over. We, we want to come meet you. Tickets go on sale Wednesday for that great thing. And beyond all that big news, the Budos band song Chicago Falcon is our ever-reliable theme music. This episode was engineered by Brett Morris and edited by the ever-reliable Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing that was very fun to track that Mars rover on. Uh, you know, the one that just landed? It felt kind of like sports, but if it was a sports game of us versus physics. You know, and we won. We beat, we beat that thing Newton figured out. We did it. Anyhow, my Twitter account is part of Team Us, and it is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmittstagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.